I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meded is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. G'day, welcome to the Australian Medical Education Podcast, or as I like to call it, Aussie Med Ed. This is where I get to interview different specialists in different areas of medicine and ask them about different conditions, including diagnoses, investigations, treatment options, etc. Really, in these COVID times, it really replaces the actual general chit-chat we used to have around the corridors or in the tea rooms or the hospitals and actually gets, gives an idea of a pragmatic approach to these different conditions and makes it more of a fun way to get a bit more information. Any questions that you might want to put to me can be put forward to, to me at gavin at med-ed.com.au and I'm Gavin Nyman, the host of this podcast, which I'm hoping will be educational in a fun and relaxed fashion. I look forward to bringing you this information today and thank you for listening. Well, thanks again. Once again, uh, it's nice to have you on board in our first educational podcast, this time based on a gastroenterologist and talk, discussing the topic of jaundice. In this particular podcast, we interviewed Dr. Sandy Craig, who will talk to us about his approach to assessment of jaundice. We we'll look forward to speaking to him later on. Hi, I'm Gavin Nyman, the host of this podcast, a North Peak surgeon based in Adelaide in South Australia. The idea of the podcast is to provide information to you after interviewing and speaking to consultants in the area of their specialties. Obviously this is not my main area of expertise and as such the information provided is of a general nature and really more of a chit chat sort of conversation to get an idea of how a real day person treats a condition. Please take on board that this information provided is of a general nature not thought to be considered as general medical advice and nor should it be the only way of treating a particular condition. Obviously the general practitioner or medical student listening to it should supplement their knowledge by this podcast but also refer to resources and consultants in the area around their specialty. I'd like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast has been produced and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our first guest Aussie Med Ed. He's a gastroenterologist who undertook his undergraduate teaching at Adelaide University from 1986 to 1991 then completed his advanced physician training both at Royal Aid Hospital between 93 to 97, obtaining a PhD at Flinders University and working on biliary motility from 98 to 2000. He's a BMO at Flinders Medical Centre until 2017, and he now works in private practice in Adelaide. I'd like to introduce Dr Sandy Craig, who is my special guest on gastroenterology, who's going to talk to us about the assessment and options of treatment for jaundice. Sandy, how are you yeah. going? Good. Thanks very much for coming along and being our first guest on uh, Aussie Med Ed, uh, Australian Medical Education Podcast. It's great to have you excellent. on. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent, excellent. Now, you're a gastroenterologist. You obviously see a lot of uh, uh, general uh, complaints, but jaundice is one that's been raised by the medical students to me about how to assess it. Obviously, it encompasses a large group of conditions, and I just really wanted to know your approach to assessing a patient who might come in jaundiced and how, you, how you'd go about assessing them. And obviously, we're talking about the adult, uh, adult population as opposed yep. to the endocrinology yep. ones. Look, um, I, I was uh, grateful for your idea of the rule of threes, that you always try to break things down into ways of approaching it so that you can remember things. And you, you can try to look at jaundice as prehepatic hepatic and extra hepatic but in simple terms it really is either in the liver or it's a blockage of the bile ducts out of the liver 
So the key from my point of view is obviously to take a full history, in particular asking about you know, the sense of whether or not there's been any infective event, the drug history, also about um, non-prescribed medications. There are some over-the-counter herbal remedies that can cause hepatitis. Obviously alcohol, something you need to consider. Um, and then whether or not people have pain. Because painless jaundice versus someone with a history perhaps of biliary colic that could then suggest common bile duct stones is, is an important part of the history, especially in the older person who could be at risk of even having cholangitis. So I suppose that, that the key is a good history on examination, trying to look for any signs of, or any signs of toxicity, but um, also whether or not there are any signs of chronic liver disease to try to work out if this is an acute on chronic situation. And then the, the, the crux of it will usually come down to um, the liver function tests and imaging to look at the bile ducts. And once you've got those things in play, you can usually then start to work it out as to whether or not it's a liver problem or a problem in the bile ducts. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. I think you bring up the idea of the history really being the most important part of, the, of it, and you've outlined a pretty good aspect of the history. Um, you mentioned, though, and medications that are bad uh, and can cause this. Which ones particularly should we watch out for? Well, I suppose just um, any antibiotic can potentiate it. The, the classic uh, uh, commencing of anticonvulsant medications, and obviously someone's um, in a more acute situation if they've had uh, paracetamol poisoning or, or overdose, um, they're, they're really the main ones. And there's some, some unusual things like anabolic steroids, some cardiac medications, but they're, they're, they're the main ones. So most of these medications probably wouldn't affect the average person, but there's some people who can have a hyperreaction to it or can take, accidentally take too large a dose, and this can cause issues. What about the infections? Um, you, obviously, I was brought up on Hep A, B and C, and we, at the time when I, was, when I was training, Hep C was a bad diagnosis, but now I believe it's curable. Are there any other type of new acute infections that we need to watch out for? I suppose we're always on the watch out for hepatitis, you know, severe hepatitis A because it might then cause more infections with other people. But um, uh, not, not, not really, Gav. I think most of that stuff's unusual, although it's fascinating the number of people that actually have antibodies to hepatitis A, meaning that there are many people who develop hepatitis A as some sort of viral illness but never actually becomes significantly unwell or jaundiced. Glandular fever in its severe form can be associated with an acute hepatitis and CNV, but it's pretty uncommon. I've, 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 I've only ever seen severe, severe glandular fever causing jaundice on a handful of occasions. You're heading on to about the obstructive causes with biliary disease. Obviously, when I was training, we saw a lot of uh, cholecystitis gallstones. Yet, for some reason, I haven't seen it come across it that often in, in practice. And I don't know if I've ever met anyone, both privately through my friends or as any of my patients who have actually had it. How common is gallstones and uh, cholecystitis in the community? Is it a common thing? Is it, um, is it is that one of the major causes well, of jaundice? Twelve percent of autopsy studies in, in autopsy studies, twelve percent of people have asymptomatic gallstones. But pretty common gallstones being present in the in society, but um, it's those unlucky people where the gallstone can get into the biliary, into the bile ducts and, and obstruct it. 
And that, that really is a situation that, that particularly junior doctors need to be aware of because an older person presenting with jaundice and fever, cholangitis can be lethal. So understanding that that is a really important situation to be aware of is, is critical. Most of these patients, I think, though, come, come through A&E departments, Gav, so that you, that's probably why you don't see it in your practice. But um, cholangitis is a worrying diagnosis. So of all those ones, which one's the most common thing that you'd see in your practice? Yeah, so um, I suppose we worry always about pancreatic malignancy. In terms of uh, uh, pancreatic malignancy, it's more that painless jaundice um, because if you do get a pancreatic cancer that's obstructing the bile duct, it tends to be quite early and not associated with pain. And there's a classic... Um, uh, clinical sign of a, of, a, of a palpable gallbladder. So uh, pancreatic tumours, are they, are they very common, Sandy? The, the early pancreatic cancer involving the, the bile duct is, is one of those rare situations where you, you can actually have a successful outcome with pancreatic cancer treatment because the, the jaundice is an early event, classically associated with a palpable gallbladder and the the, the, I assume it was a Frenchman, Corvazier, who described that sign. And the, the, the important aspect of that sign is that if people have had a history of gallstones, the gallbladder tends to be small and contracted and won't dilate. So that, that, and that's often a bit of a classic exam question. Um, but no, pan pancreatic cancer and then the, the, the rarities in terms of bile duct tumours such as um, um, cholangiocarcinoma, which is not, not very common. But in more in, in terms of malignancy, metastatic cancer in the liver causes a bit of a mixed picture of cancer, um, sometimes with nodes around the bile duct getting compressing the bile duct. But also, if the liver becomes extensively involved in metastases, it develops its own form of, of what what you call intrahepatic cholestasis. Okay. So now they're, they're they're probably the most common, and then then the, the classic being the the cirrhotic person who then decompensates and becomes jaundice, that's a very common cause. Excellent. If you just come back to your earlier question of how you define it, you're really trying to work out if it's an intrahepatic or extrahepatic problem. And I would initially do blood tests looking at the liver function test and if it was a transaminitis with an ultrasound not showing bile duct dilation, then you'd head down the pathway of investigating liver causes. Right. If the bile ducts were dilated, you immediately look at, and, and the liver tests were suggestive of cholestasis with a raised ALP and, AL, and GGT. You then down, head down the pathway of more um, careful examination of the bile ducts, usually with an MRI of the bile ducts or MRCP. Right. And then, an MR, MRCP is an MRI um, with... Well, it turns out um, the, the, the um, biliary secretions can be um, carefully... Um, managed by the MRI machine to give you lovely pictures of of a, of a cholangiogram. Okay. So so ERCP is only really now a a interventional procedure to either put a stent in or to remove stones. It's they used to be so to common. Take, yes, no. Well, that, so so MRCP really has taken has taken over that space. And how often, how often do you need to do intervention to remove stones or uh, how often are cholecystectomy uh, required of all the people who get some jaundice? Will most of them require something like that in that scenario? Or? So, 
I think these days if um, the surgeons are far more skilled at trying to handle both removing the gallbladder and trying to remove common bile duct stones at the same time, although it can be a tricky situation because if you operate on the gallbladder and you don't decompress the bile duct, you run the risk of the surgical um, clips not holding. So more often than not, people will do an ERCP prior to cholecystectomy to ensure that you've got good drainage of the bile ducts. But how common is this stuff? It's happening that there'd be several lists a week of ERCP at most tertiary centres um, for you know, bile duct stone removal or mainly to put stents in malignant strictures as a way of decompressing the system and, and relieving jaundice. Okay. We talked about examination before. What parts do you really want to look at when you're examining a patient? I suppose you're obviously trying to examine the just get a feel for how big the liver is, if it's tender, which is more common in acute hepatitis. In particular, looking for signs of chronic liver disease and all those classical things, starting with the hands and working up the arms to the to the to the head, um, looking for palmar erythema, clubbing, Jupitron, bruising, suggesting co- coagulopathy, spider nevi in the chest and cheeks. Uh, you know, gynecomastia for a sign of cirrhosis. Um, assessing for splenomegaly, which could be either tied up with an infective event or a sign of chronic liver disease with portal hypertension. So you're really trying to assess all of those issues. Okay. What about what about something like Gilbert's syndrome or Gilbert syndrome? I'm not sure how it's pronounced nowadays, but um, is that I believe that's quite think common. You had a bit of French about it. Yeah, well, I thought Gilbert's. it did actually. Yeah, I thought it was Gilbert, but is it Gilbert's? No, I've always called it Gilbert's, but um. Look, it's thought to affect maybe 5 to 10% of the population. Typically, these people, this is now getting into the concept of the isolated, elevated bilirubin. So all the liver enzymes are normal, but you've got this, this bilirubin that's typically about 30 to 40. And if you fractionate it, you can work out if it's, got, if it's unconjugated or conjugated. And if it's predominantly unconjugated, that's classic for Gilbert's. Although it's important to always have a look at the blood picture to make sure there's no signs of hemolysis. Obviously, you know, hemolytic conditions will cause uh, an unconjugated hypobilirubinemia, but Gilbert's is undoubtedly the most common cause of an isolated, elevated bilirubin. And will they cause jaundice in that scenario? Or yeah, is it... not not commonly. And what will typically happen is sometimes someone with Gilbert's will be given a medication or just get a viral illness or just have have you know, maybe a few too many drinks, and they might run a bilirubin of up to, say, 70 and be mildly jaundiced. And there's the rare cases where people will become obviously jaundiced. I've got a general rule of thumb that the the the, the icteric or, you know, um, sclera becoming jaundiced, you've got to have a bilirubin of about 50 to 70. And then once you, once you get a bilirubin of more than that, it might start to become apparent in the skin. Um, but they, they rarely get bilirubins of more than 100. But Gilbert's is thought to affect 5 to 10% of the population, so it's pretty common. Interesting thing with this is uh, once your patient does present with jaundice, how is it how is it treated? Apart from treating the underlying condition which causes it, is there any way of actually improving the uh, or reducing the bilirubin in the system and uh, excreting so I, it? I, it's mainly in people with extrahepatic obstruction, and that's what I was talking about with the ERCP and the interventions you can look at with stenting to, to drain, to get drainage out of the bile duct. 
And that's really important because people can become very, very um, distressed with itch when jaundice is persistent. And particularly people with malignant causes of jaundice, trying to make sure that they get drainage is crit critical. And it also, if, once you've got drainage, it means the risk of cholangitis decreases enormously. Any other tests apart from um, MRC, MRICP or the uh, uh, blood test that the students need to be aware of? Uh, obviously, always assessing people's um, liver function, their, their synthetic function by looking at their INR, their albumin, looking for any signs of liver failure with um, hepatic flaps, signs of ascites. That, that, that's always important to have a sense of people's what, what's called the child's score or the child's Q score that, that is a, really a, an assessment of how the, the liver is compensated or uncompensated. Well, thanks, Andy. I think it's been a fantastic rundown of how a real-world physician treats jaundice. really appreciate your advice and I hope the audience has found it very useful. Once again, it's been great having you on the show and uh, for those listening, Dr. Sandy Craig, I really appreciate his advice. He's one of the nicest guys in medicine and a very pragmatic approach to how a jaundice can be assessed and treated. Once again, thank you very much, Sandy. It's been great having you. You're very kind, Gav. Anytime. Okay. Well, thank you very much. See Once again, I'd like to remind you that the information provided in this podcast is really a supplement to other sources of information, such as from research and from other consultants in the area. And the information provided today is of a general nature, not specific to a specific condition or per specific patient. A person listening who's trying to find out more information about their particular condition should always consult their general practitioner or seek specialist advice. You realise that the information provided is in a general manner and it's not considered as a part of a general medical consultation and any further information provided should be treated in general and in no way provide individual clinical advice. Well, thank you very much for listening to our podcast, Australian Medical Education or Aussie Med Ed. It's been a pleasure giving you this information and I'd like any further feedback or questions directed towards me put towards gavin at med-ed.com.au. Any questions on a particular area of medicine will be directed towards a specialist in the area. We'll make it as a part of our podcast for the next time. Look forward to hearing from you. And once again, we'll look forward to the next time you might listen. Thank you once again.